It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. there. Welcome to today's edition, this week, I should say, uh, edition of Film Festival Radio Show with me, Janice Malone. Yes, we are here. We're all gathered together to uh, to do a show. We've got guests. Let me tell you about our guests. We've got, we always have some really good guests, don't we? Sometimes eh, a, little, mm, a little bit, but most of the time, I'd say about 90 percent of the time we've got some really fabulous guests and this week's show is no exception let me tell you just briefly about our guests for this week well first of all we're going to resume part two of my exclusive interview with uh entertainment manager producer now author ramon hervey and we did part one of his uh, talking about his new book called the fame game just came out of about maybe three weeks ago and it is a must read especially if you are in the entertainment industry or maybe you're thinking about or maybe you just got into the entertainment industry i highly suggest that you read this book i read the book in less than two days it's over 300 pages a little little over but it was just that interesting and ramon is not only a former manager for his ex-wife the great vanessa williams but he's also a former manager to rick james and little richard and uh kenny edmund's uh baby face yeah baby face he's was a head pr person for bet mittler for a number of years the list the who's who for ramon hervey is just unbelievable long before he met uh, Vanessa. He was very well established in the area of management, in entertainment career management, and an expert in crisis management when it comes to PR and publicity. So again, the book is The Fame Game. So we're going to have part two of my interview with him about the book. We also have two of the members from the new season of CBS's hit show, The Amazing Race. We're talking about Team T-Rex. Yes, Coach Rex Ryan and his uh, team partner for the show, his longtime friend, his golf buddy also, uh, Tim Mann, will be joining us. And we also have an author. Yes, we do have an author joining us. And he is... Um, well, everybody has heard of Axios, of course, the big international media conglomerate, and they are just all over the world. So we have one of the co-founders of Axios, Mike Allen, and he has a new book titled Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. I'll tell you more about that book. This is a book everybody needs to read. I am not kidding you. It, you'll see why. So that is our guest lineup. And before we get to those guests, I want to give you a quick announcement really fast. Later this evening from 5 till 8 p.m. at the Desert Breeze Park, uh, the Desert Breeze Community Center will be hosting La Cultura which is an outdoor special event celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. And 
this will be a sounds like a really fun event. They're going to have cultural performances and music and arts, uh, arts and crafts, vendors, food trucks. You know, I'm a foodie girl, love my food. So it will again take place at Desert Breeze Park and it is totally free from 5 till 8 p.m. today, this evening. So you still have time. Wait until we go off first. Let's finish listening to us first, please. So anyway, um, we're going to take a break. I give you a, gave you a preview about our guests and we will be back with our first guest right after this. Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone will be right back after this. Okay, um, we are about to start with our our show with our first guest here. I just want to say if you are visiting Vegas from out of town, from another country or another state, city, welcome to our beloved, wonderful city. And I hope you are having fun. I hope you win a lot of money, do a lot of shopping and come back and see us again during the holidays. Okay. I just kind of felt led to say that. But anyway, uh, aren't you enjoying the nice cooler temperatures? We're getting to be the fall season and it's just beautiful. Continuous sunshine year round. We're almost like Hawaii. Except we don't have that beach thing. Yeah, we, we had that beach. We would we would give you a run for the money there, Hawaii. But anyway, let's get to our first guest here. Our first guest is, uh, his name is Mike Allen. And he is one of the co-founders of the world-renowned media information company, Axios. You know about Axios. And he's also one of the co-authors of this new book, just came out, called Smart Brevity. Full title, Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. As I said before, our show receives a lot of books because we have so many authors wanting to come on the show and we love that. I must admit, a lot of these books, I cannot read all of them and I am lovely, loving donating a lot of these books to uh, people and libraries and just different places. And there are times, though, when I want to keep the book for myself. And this book, Smart Brevity, is one of them. It is, It. let me give you the summation of it. As I said, Mike Allen and his two uh, colleagues, he's one of three authors, he's one of the, the co-authors, they have created this book and it's an essential guide for all of us for communicating effectively and efficiently efficiently, like I'm trying to do now, efficiently, efficiently in this era of social media, which is sometimes very hard. We know, you know how that goes. I mean, every day we are bombarded with words, emails, text messages, IMs, all kinds of social media. It's just it's just like information word overload. It's like a word salad explosion sometimes. So what the writers of this book have done is created, as I said, an essential guide into how to say more, how to get your point across by saying less, but still being effective. How do you do that? There's a there's an art, there's a skill in how to do that. Because let's face it, nowadays, most of us, our attention span is about as long as aerosol spray pump or something. It's like, next. It's just that, that quick. So we need to still communicate with words, 
verbally. And so now we have a book smart brevity that will hopefully help us to do that. One of the, uh, one of my favorite comments in the book is that uh, the writers say brevity is confidence. Length is fear. And so we hopefully will have time to get more into what is that all about. But the main thing is what I like about it is that this book helps us all to write, to speak, and to communicate a lot of content, but condense and concise it down to where it still makes sense. And there, again, there's an art and a skill in how to do that. So let's bring on the co-author, one of the co-authors of three, Mike Allen of the new book, Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. And as I said, he is one of the co-founders of the world-renowned uh, corporation Axios. So let's bring him on right now. Janice, please go ahead. All right. Good uh, morning, Janice. This is Mike Allen. Hi, Mike. I have been, man, you have no idea. I've been waiting to talk to you about this book. Your new book is Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. Our show receives so many books. We talk to so many authors. This is a book that I have personally kept and I will be keeping on my bookshelf. So thank you and your two co-writers, Jim Vanderhey and Roy Schwartz for this book. Thank you guys so much. Well, Janice, thank you. That makes me feel so good. And Smart Brevity will really empower your listeners, whether you are trying to get your kid to do something, whether you are a teacher, whether you are a minister, whether you're an intern, whether you're the boss, whether you want to be the boss. There's tips here that will make your life better. Now, Mike, I thought, okay, we have Twitter, we have texting. I thought we were shortening enough, so we have to make things even shorter? No, Janice, we have to make it smarter, right? Oh, the, okay. the, so much of the so much of the social media is dumb, right? And yes. what smart brevity helps you do is figure out what the sharp, smart thing is. Like, what's the one thing that you want people to remember? Because I, I know from my personal life, and I think this will resonate with you, that any particular radio show, work meeting, Zoom, podcast, sermon, like any particular experience, if you remember one thing, that's a win, right? Like yes. how many things in our life uh, uh, do we sit through and we don't get anything out of? So we go back to that audience first thing, we flip that on its head, and we say, okay, the most anyone's going to remember from what I have to say, whether it's in an email or whether it's in, as you say, a tweet or a text, the most someone's going to remember is one thing. And so on the front end, I think through what that is and uh, – figure out how to say it sharply, how to say it smartly, how I can say it so that they will remember it. And then, and here's the secret, just say it. But that's not our natural inclination, right? Our natural inclination is to hide our key point in lots of words. We just keep talking and typing and it leaves our audience confused. Whereas if we just say it, then we can be heard. Have we as a culture. Have we always been like that mentally, psychologically? Was it always there? And, and because of the new technology is just now coming out that that's how we are wired as humans? 
I, I think what it is is just technology makes so many more words available, right? Like it's so much easier uh, for us to inflict words on other people. And one of the things that we discovered as we looked at eye tracking studies and brain science for Smart Brevity, the book, like what we found was that if you encounter a bunch of words, a glob of text, a big block of text, we just skip it. And yeah. if you think about like so many memos in the workplace, so many emails, so many uh, uh, even a text that we send to people, it's just words and they're not going to pick it out. So a uh, uh, very handy thing that, that will serve all of your listeners and that anybody can, and that is before you send something, it could be a letter, it could be a memo, it could be an update, it could be an email. Before you send something, read it out loud. I do that with my newsletters. And that does two things for you. One, like when you and I are sitting having breakfast or when we're talking like this, there are social cues that keep me from being boring, right? Like I don't use big words, what my grandma called $10 words. And I don't repeat myself and I don't tell you things that you already know, right? Because I want you to like me. I want you to have me back for breakfast or on your show. But when any of us sit at a keyboard, we do all those things, right? And so if you read it out loud, you instantly realize, oh, I'm using words that no human would use in a conversation. The other day, one of our reporters wrote aforementioned. And you would never say aforementioned, but you would write it all the time. And the other thing it does is when you read it out loud, if you start to bore yourself, you know that you're going to bore the person who's getting it. Absolutely. Guilty as charged here. Well, now, <laughs> very guilty. Mike, the, the book is filled with so many helpful tidbits here. And again, people, if you write, communicate, even if you talk, please get this book. I highly recommend it. I'm just not just saying it because I have one of the authors here. The book, again, is Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. So, Mike, give us a quick tip as to how we can grab an audience immediately. Yeah. Say something that relates to them. Get okay. my attention. If, uh, with an email, a lot of times the subject line is the last thing that we think of. But if you haven't thought that through, you might as well forget the other words. Because if I don't open your email, there's uh, nothing. I'm not going to get anything out of what you've written. So uh, in Smart Brevity, the book, we show you right three like short words in the subject line. That's what will show up in somebody's phone, and uh, they will open it. And how's this for smart brevity? Uh, I was talking to somebody who said that if they really want if someone to read their email, they just put one word in the subject line, you. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, I got to borrow that. I must borrow that. And, and okay, we have like three minutes left. Mike, how can this book, you write, you say that this book can be used to enhance personal relationships. Now, how can that be? So... Listen to this. I had a friend who was trying to break up, and he was old school. He'd written a, a note uh, to her and said, it was so great to get to know you, and like we've had great times. And they said, and then it wasn't meant to be, and there were all these problems. And I'm like, no, just stop. If you want to ask somebody for 
a raise, if you want to ask somebody to go out, just ask and then stop. Don't dig yourself deeper. Don't talk yourself out of your raise. Don't talk yourself out of the sale. I so often see somebody who is has a good product, and I'm reading the body language of their prospect, and the person wants to buy it, but they keep talking. And if they just would have stopped, the person would have said, where do I sign? But they kept talking and raised so many issues that the person finally said, okay, I'll think about it. So in our personal life, in our work life, in our social life, say what you want to say, make your point, and then just stop. And just go. The Power of Saying More with Less is your new book. And I cannot wait for people to get hold of this. I know so many people who need this book. So thank you so much for our chat. And I look for our part two more lengthier chat very soon. Look forward to that, Janice. I'll see you on smartbrevity.com. And in the meantime, thanks for the conversation. Absolutely. Same here. Take care then. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. This is Drew and Jonathan Scott, The Property Brothers, and you are listening to Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone. Okay, we are back with more of Film Festival Radio show. I told you we had, we just got some really cool guests. Always have good, good, good guests. And this week makes no exception because it's time for our second set of guests here. Oh my God, how many of you are fans of the CBS hit show, The Amazing Race? Millions of you, obviously, because the show has been on 21 years. So the new season just started, what, three days ago, Wednesday. Season, uh, what, 34? Season a whole lot of them. I think it's 34, though. So we had the opportunity to chat with, uh, out of the 12 teams, of course, you know, it's 12 teams. You've seen the show, of course. We got the opportunity to talk with... Team T-Rex, which consists of NFL coach and ESPN analyst, Coach Rex Ryan, and his buddy, golf friend, and just all-around good guy, Tim Mann, who works as a probation officer, and he lives, uh, he's, a, he's a weekend warrior athlete, lives in the uh, beautiful suburb of Nashville called Brentwood, Tennessee. So I got the opportunity to chat with him last Tuesday, right before the premiere of the new season of The Amazing Race. And it was so much fun chatting with both of them. And as we all know, Coach Rex is, he's Coach Rex. He's just fun. He's lovable. He's charismatic. And we just love watching him, us sports fans, on ESPN, of course. So... We pre-recorded that interview, obviously, because it was last Tuesday, as I said. So let's take a roll. Let's roll it and let's listen to it with my wonderful fun chat with Coach Rex Ryan and his buddy and friend as they talk about how they are going to maneuver through the hit show, The Amazing Race. So let's take a listen. We have everybody here and accounted for. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat this morning. So, okay, let's just jump right in here. Uh, the Amazing Race 34 premiering tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, of course, on CBS. And you guys are a part of the 12 teams. Okay, first of all, congratulations for being on 
the, the crew there, a part of the teams. And so I understand that you two are friends for, what, six, seven, eight years? Is that how you got together? You were buddies? Yeah, it's probably somewhere around eight years. Uh, we, we met uh, on the golf course about eight years ago, and then our friendship just turned into more of a brotherhood. I look at Rex as like a, like a bigger brother. And so, uh, since you are golf buddies, who's the better golfer between the two of you? Oh, Tim's a much better golfer than me. I, I had shoulder surgery, and that's my excuse. So uh, I, I'm not I'm not that good of a golfer, uh, but he he's getting a lot better. It's scary. He's almost getting too good. I would say Rex has more fun now. If you want to ask that, yeah, no that question. <laughs> no doubt. Well, now, were you guys? As far as the show, uh, were you longtime fans of The Amazing Race, or how did you end up on the show? Did they ask, the producers ask you, or did you guys say, hey, we'd like to do this, or what? Well, uh, Rex got invited to be on the show, and they asked him and his brother to be on the show, and his brother was still coaching. So Rex actually asked me while we were golfing um, if, I, if I would be his partner on the show, if I was interested. Um, and it, it's my mother-in-law's favorite show. We call her Yaya for Greek, um, and she lives with us. So I told Rex, I said, hey, listen, this is Yaya's show. She, she has not missed an episode. She has not missed a season. This is, this, is her, this is her favorite thing to watch. So Rex looked at me and says, all right, you're my partner. We're going on it. So we went through all the steps and had to go all through uh, and everything else that everybody else had to do, um, and we got accepted, and we're able to be on The Amazing Race. What kind of preparation uh, have you two been doing in order to participate on this show? Yeah, I think, well, Tim is a, uh, a, a former national powerlifting champion, and, and he runs in marathons, and uh, so he really never had to do anything special. Me, on the other hand, I hadn't done anything for years, and I was like 300 pounds, and I'm like, man, I, I got I to gotta start somewhere. So we started jogging, and and I made it about a mile my first day, and I was like literally just oh, I mean, gasping for breath. I'm like, this, this, we got a long way to go. But I started dieting, and, and uh, I would run every day. And I got to where I was running like three and a half miles a day, and I lost 50 pounds um, in, in like a month and a half. So that's kind of how I prepared for it. I didn't want to let them down. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of. You know, I, I had that kind of commitment to it. You know, if we're going to do it, we might as well give it a shot. So that's exactly what we did. Well, Coach, what have some of your uh, ESPN colleagues and your NFL friends said about you doing this show? Uh, they're not surprised. They know I'm crazy. They, uh, <laughs> you know, I've run with the Bulls before. I've done it in Spain. I've, I've done a lot of crazy things. And, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of par for the course. Although I will say that Sam Ponder was like, you know, I want to be your partner and all that type of stuff. But uh, the fans are going to be really disappointed to hear that because they'd much rather have Sam on the show <laughs> than Tim. Uh, but, but realistically, you know, I mean, she's got kids and, uh, you know, she, there's no way. But it was, uh, but we laugh about it. And I'm like, you know, that, that's, uh, but everybody's like, I would have done, you know, I'd be great on it. I'd be whatever. But I tell you what, there's so much more in uh, involved in it, like just the process of being on the show. You got to take uh, a wonderlic test, which is like an intelligence test. You got all kind of psychological testing, and 
different things, and yet they still let us be on there. So, <laughs> uh, but but either way, it was it, it was a big process and going through physicals, getting like four or five different vaccination shots, a international driver's license. You got you know, Gosh. it's kind of a. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it, it's some steps now. I mean, a lot of steps involved, and and then they chose us. So then it was on when, you know, we, we flew out to L.A. and and then uh, then it was on. Now again, it's twelve teams, of course. Are you guys considered the underdogs of the teams, or what? Uh, I would think so. Uh, I mean, uh, we definitely brought the uh, the age factor. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, but uh, that's what that's what Rex said. You know, we we have we have wisdom. So I hope, uh, as you guys will see, our, our wisdom uh, could come into play. So we definitely would be the uh, would be the underdogs on the show. Yeah, we have a hundred years experience between us. <laughs> you know, Tim is forty one and I'm fifty nine years old. So we were, I mean, twice the age of the other teams uh, when you combine our age. It was almost 101 years of age because I had to remind Rex how old he was the one time on the golf. That's true. <laughs> well, Coach, when we see you on television, we really don't see age. We just see a, a guy that's lovable and, and knowledgeable and just a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And, and it is true. And I think part of it is, um, you know, when you're around, like, these young men all the time, like when you're a coach, it does keep you young. The only reason I can tell I'm older is when I look in the mirror, it's like, man, dude, what happened? But, uh, and, and then also when I started running, uh, for preparing for this race, I felt old then, but that's about it. I, I think we're, we got a young spirit and, and, uh, you know, Tim and I feed off each other and, and it's, uh, it's fun. Hopefully, uh, people are entertained and, and, uh, you know, they can connect with our team, I hope. Okay, well, I got two last questions here, and we'll wrap this up. Um, now, which one of you, I understand one of you is not really cool about heights, you know, dig going up high and mountains and all that kind of stuff. Who is that? Uh, that that's me. Oh, <laughs> I, okay, I, Tim. I am, not, <laughs> I, I, am, I am not afraid <laughs> to, to, to own that either. Um, I did go skydiving a few years ago to see if that would help. That did not help. Uh, I think it made it even worse. So Rex and I had to talk um, that if anything co with heights comes up, uh, Rex is taking it. And I think he wanted to take it because he was more excited about doing the ice. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's the problem. Like, I mean, no, I don't want to do that stuff either, you know. But I, want, I knew he had such a fear of it. And I'm like, I did too. You know, he was at a 10. I was like at a 9.9. <laughs> but uh, I'm like, okay, I'll do you know, what the heck, I'll, I'll do it. But uh, our problem is when you're doing this race, you know, I wanted to go back in and said, okay, any of those challenges, okay, Tim, you're going to do every one of these challenges. <laughs> but that's not how it works. You know, they don't let that happen. But but either way, yeah, we did we did say that, hey, if, if it comes to that, I'll, I'll take the heights. And wasn't happy about it. And lastly, Coach, what was the most nerve-wracking doing the amazing race or coaching in the NFL? Oh, well, usually my teams were much better than uh, than our ability. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I tell you, it was, uh, both are fun, but when, when you're coaching in, in the NFL and that's your livelihood's riding on it, I, I'd say that's probably a little more uh, 
uh, you feel a little more nervous about that. Well, Coach, I am based in Las Vegas. Do you, any advice for the Raiders that you can give? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they just got to close it out. Like, yeah. you know, my brother's coaching there. Uh, he's coaching uh, defensive ends there with, with Crosby and, and uh, uh, Chandler Jones. But, it's you know, they had that game one. It, it was what it seemed like. And they had a couple of, of bad calls, a couple of bad breaks. And then Kyler Murray was – he just did Kyler Murray things. And, unfortunately, that's what happens when you when you face a, a guy with that kind of ability. But, you know, it's a long season, and they just got to get back. They just got to get that first win under their belt, and then they'll get it rolling. Okay. Well, The Amazing Grace 34 premieres tonight on CBS, 9 p.m. Eastern. Everybody else, get your calculators and interpret your own time zone. So we will see you guys in action tonight. And thank you so much for chatting with me. I've really had a lot of fun chatting with you gentlemen. Our pleasure having us. Okay. Take care. See you tonight. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, I'm Sherry Shepard, and you're listening to Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone. Okay, thank you, Coach Ryan and friend Tim, better known as Team T-Rex from CBS's hit show, The Amazing Race. And they are so much fun. I know Coach Ryan is probably very pleased with how his former team that he used to coach the Buffalo Bills are doing. They, they really showed out last weekend, didn't they? You know, I did not know that Cole Beasley, that they traded him to Miami. I had met and interviewed Cole Beasley about two years ago. Good player. I wonder what, what was that all about? But anyway, let's get to our next guest here. Uh, as I said earlier, our next guest is uh, a very talented, uh, prolific managing manager. He, he's the manager's manager. Ramon Hervey is... Uh, got this new book out. The Fame Game is a short title. And we did part one of his interview last week and it's time for part two. Ramon Hervey has a long, it's like a scroll. There's so many long list of celebrities that he's either managed or he has done, uh, directed their PR in some way or form. He is the founder of his own management and PR firm. And as I said, he's been a manager of so many top A-list celebrities. They are just household names all over the world, such as uh, uh, Richard Pryor, Little Richard, uh, who else? Rick James, Babyface, uh, you know, Kenny Edmonds is his actual name. Of course, his uh, former wife, Vanessa Williams. He's worked with Motown. He's worked with, um, oh, it's just the list is long. Just go get the book, The Fame Game. And you can just find out as he recalls not only some of his uh, best memories of different events and working with A-list celebrities throughout his nearly 40 years of being a, a manager as well as a publicist, but he's not your ordinary regular publicist. He is an expert in crisis management. As oftentimes when celebrities get in trouble, they get people like Ramon who are 
spin doctors is what they sometimes are referred to because they know how to spin a problem and spin it back into the right direction and get these celebrities back on track. People like uh, the recent incident with Tiffany Haddish and Ari Spears, that when those types of crisis happens, uh, Ramon would know what to do and how to do it. Expert in his field. Okay, this book again is The Fame Game. And in the last part, uh, the, the second part here, one of the things that we're going to talk about is should, should a spouse also be, you know, have a client as, as, a, as a spouse? Should a spouse be the manager of a spouse? You know, as and he's walked in those shoes before. And so we've seen a lot of celebrities, especially women here recently, like Mary J. Blige and so many others, Wendy Williams, where that was the case. So I asked him to give his uh, take on, is that a good idea or is it a bad idea or is it just, where does he stand? So let's take a listen at the rest of my big interview with the one and only Ramon Hervey as we finish discussing his new book, The Fame Game. So let's take a listen. Is it more challenging to build a client's career and say, you know, they're new, maybe they got one currently a hit record or hit movie or whatever, or is it more of a challenge to rebuild a client's career who was once established and you've done both? So which one is the most challenging for you that you think? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I'd like to say that the most Probably it's more challenging to resurrect a career um, because at that point you're dealing with a personality that maybe doesn't want to make the sacrifices or make the adjustments in their style, their approach to the business that require them to be viewed in a different light. When you're working with a new artist, do have the benefit of a little bit of naivety and, and just a lot of passion and a lot of hard work and they're willing to invest more so than uh, an older star who is pretty much set in their ways and they're disgruntled about the fact that they're, they, they're not getting the same amount of attention that they once got. So it really depends on the in each case, it depends on the artist, but I do think in my uh, experience in trying to resurrect or uh, revive careers, the biggest challenge is getting the, the, those artists to understand where they really lie in terms of relevancy, because if they can't accept how far down they've gone, then they can't get back up. And I know that can be a challenge with some of these celebrities, uh, more established ones, and their egos. So I know that's not always yeah, it's easy. Yeah, it's an ego-driven business. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's what have you done for me lately? And as you get older, you know, when you're being, when you say, for example, if you had a great run and you've had maybe two decades of fame and success, um, and all of a sudden you're, you know, the saying in, the, in our business is you can't get arrested. Uh, that's when it's 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 a it's a lot for someone to you know hit that wall and realize that they're not relevant anymore, and then try to figure out what. Uh, and I think social media makes that even harder because some of them don't understand it; they don't want to be bothered with it, and um, it's 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 added another weight on their back 
you know, of, okay, so now I have to try to be relevant. And then on top of that, I have to try to be relevant on social media. So it, it's a double, double wing. Well, I've got two last questions here. As we all know, uh, we are in an era where a lot of famous celebrities or household name celebrities, uh, their spouses have been their managers from Wendy Williams, Kelly Clarkson, Mary J, Reba, so many. And you've, again, you've been in that position as well, where the spouse has also been the manager of these entertainers. Do you think that's a good idea sometimes, or where do you stand on that? Um, <laughs> where do I stand on that? Uh, I sit on that. Uh, what I, from my personal experience, one is uh, it wasn't something that I wanted to do, first of all, um, because I worked with, uh, you know, I had been asked to work with different artists um, who did have uh, parents who managed them, and they wanted me to get involved as a co-manager. Uh, Brandy, Usher, um, Monica, I mean, several different artists that, and I was against, you know, uh, doing that. And the biggest reason I think why I think it is, a, it can be problematic Usually, this is these are parents who don't have professional experience, and they they get involved with their um, kids when they're uh, possibly underage. Uh, Pink was another one who I was asked to uh, work with as well. Um, but what happens is that you know I think that there has to be a distinction between a manager and an artist at all times that the career, it's not a dual career. You know, in my case with Vanessa Williams, I told her, you look, this is not my career. This is your career. I have my own career. And so in my case, I did come to the table with, you know, some professional ac acumen and, and expertise that I could bring to the table to help her. Uh, a lot of the people that you named, they didn't have that. And so I think you become a liability to your spouse or your child or whatever when you're making decisions, ill-informed decisions that uh, that could hurt their career or or prevent them from growing um, and developing as artists. And so I think it's something that you really, I think unless you have the professional skills um, and you have some training that you shouldn't do it. You should get someone that, you know, get the best people, surround your loved ones with the people that you trust and who you believe can do the best for them. Now, there are cases where, you know, I think Taylor Swift, I think she has a mother involved in her business and she's, you know, they have a very successful business together. So it is something that I, uh, I was successful at it for the time that I did it. Um, but it's not something that I think um, can always work out for the best. And to further speak of uh, the era when you managed Vanessa, I was very surprised to see where initially, as you write, that she asked, initially asked you to be a manager, but you had this long list as to why you didn't want to do it. That was kind of surprising. Yeah, well, that, you know, I just kind of went over why, yeah. because I had been in so many, I've seen so many of those cases, and I didn't want to be uh, grouped in that way of being a spouse's 
manager. I just didn't. It wasn't something that I thought I needed to do for my career at that point. Then, you know, to me, there were, you know, I was on a different path. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, I was in the process of transitioning into management. So it wasn't that I didn't think I could be a capable manager, but I didn't want that. Uh, tag on being a spouse's manager, you know. Um, but ultimately, I did try to help her get management, and we got turned down uh, a bunch of times, and she finally just said, you know, why don't you do it? And uh, it was at the request that I finally gave in and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You once also managed uh, Babyface, and again, this is, this is a chapter of people need to go get the book and read all of the details. But this kind of, I don't know why reading about this incident with the the, the hit single Girlfriend, Babyface, Pebbles, Vanessa Williams, that left me ticked off for some reason how that all went down with that particular song. And people, again, go get the book and you'll see what I'm talking about. So, you know, how did, did that leave how did that how did you ended up end up feeling about that when it was all said and done well when it's all said and done you know you you really have to you know you can't hold a i i personally don't feel it's healthy to hold grudges in our business and i think you have to really look uh at a situation a scenario with with open eyes and and and, and, and an understanding that situation was out of our control because those two guys, L.A. Reid and, and Kenny Babyface Edmonds, were just at the, you know, they were just starting off their career as songwriter producers. Vanessa uh, had done a demo song, that song, Girlfriends. She was in the process of demo, demoing that song. Uh, they submitted it. We wanted them to write several songs for Vanessa's first album. And, uh, but they wanted to play us a few songs that were available. And we didn't really like any of them, but we did like that song. So that was, uh, that's how, um, and we did that song on spec. So when you do a song on spec, there are no rights. In other words, we didn't have uh, a contract that were, and they weren't getting paid to work with Vanessa on the song. So we had no rights to that song. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. Um, and what happened was Pebbles heard the same song while they were working on it, while Vanessa had demoed it and had a scratch vocal, lead vocal on the track. And then um, after Pebbles heard it, she told her husband and MCA Records, and they found out that the song was available per se. Uh, and they offered Kenny and L.A. a, a nice uh, fee to produce the record for Bells. And uh, so we lost the song, but we didn't have any rights to the song. That's the part that some people don't realize. In addition, um, we the label was going to delay the record because Vanessa was pregnant. And um, because of that, those guys said, well, you know, we're getting paid, we give it to Vanessa, the record's not gonna come out for a while and we need the money now. And so that's how it ended up happening. But where it got messy for me uh, was the fact that they never t told us. In other words, this all 
came out through the grapevine. They stopped calling us, both of them. I couldn't reach them on the phone or anything. And uh, so that was kind of messy. But uh, as it turned out, you know, a few years later after, you know, I never held it against them per se. I just said, you know, yes, that was unprofessional. All you had to do was call. You say, hey, we have a great opportunity here. I would have said, hey, I understand it. You know, because again, we didn't have a signed contract. So uh, if you don't have a signed contract, you know, it's open, to, you know, open territory. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the part that rubbed me the wrong way about they didn't call you guys to let you know what had happened. The offer. Yeah, and that happens. You know, that happens in a lot of businesses where people don't take the time. You know, if someone passes on something, you know, it takes two seconds. To say, hey, you know, thanks for submitting, but um, I'm not interested. Yeah. Our business is, is notorious for that. You know, not just for that kind of scenario, but I can I could give you hundreds of scenarios where a five-second email or call could have cleared the air, and instead people just choose not to do it. I don't know why, but it's it's, it's definitely something that's uh, prevalent in our industry. So that, they're not the first people to do something like that, but that one, because it, the song did end up becoming a hit, and because Pebbles ended up being with L.A., it got a lot of mileage. <laughs> a lot. I even remember hearing little tidbits about uh, some of what you mentioned in the book, but you thoroughly spread it out and told all the details. And so I think that's probably why it's, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing some of this. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a big deal at the it time. It was. You know, and, and we, you know we, we just didn't comment on it because we didn't want to fuel it and make it any bigger than it needed to be. You know, like I said, it was out of our control. I mean, you know, there was, um, there was only so much that we could do once they made that decision. There was nothing we could do, actually, once they made that decision. So, you know. So how it goes. Well, yeah, we didn't have any legal grounds. So. Well, at the end, uh, you write uh, the tenets of fame. You list 13 of them. And again, people go get the book, The Fame Game, and you will see. And they, this is some very wise, I call them tips of uh, information. I strongly suggest, Ramon, that anyone who is thinking that they want to enter the entertainment industry, maybe they're just getting started in entertainment, or maybe they're up to their neck in it. This is just a really good book to read. I, I will strongly suggest it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's really, I try to make it as a hybrid. So it's really, I, I, I like to think of it on three levels. One, it's my story. It's a professional story. Um, I call it a promar because it's not really a memoir. It's really about my professional life. And, you know, just a struggle of uh, being a black man in an in a entertainment industry, which, you know, there's a lot of systemic racism in entertainment. Yes. And, you know, at the time that I started, there was, you know, it was, it was difficult. There weren't a lot of, there wasn't another Ramon that I could, you know, go to. I had a few people that helped me out, but uh, it was, uh, it was a, it was tough for a lot of blacks, my peers at that time, when we were a part of a new generation of blacks that were given, you know, access for the first time in the industry. So I, I, there's my story, and then there's the stories of all the famous people that I rep ended up representing, and their own unique stories. And one of the things I wanted people to understand is there is no recipe for how to become famous. Because I and I think in today's world, fame is overemphasized. You know, don't and I. One of my tenets is you know, don't obsess about fame. 
obsess about being the best. And I think that's, there's a lost value in that and working hard and, and just trying to be successful. None of the clients, uh, the hundreds of clients that I've represented over my my career, we didn't sit around and talk about being famous. We, we, we really collaborated on how can we be successful. And then the last part is, you know, just about how our attitudes towards fame have changed because of social media and just trying to get people in arc so they can see that there are some, you know, things that I learned that I still think are, are applicable today and that social media is only, it's like a preteen. It's not, it's only 12 years old, you know, so we're changing and we're letting this, these platforms really dictate so much of our lives and compared to newspapers and radio that started in the late 1800s and then you have you know TV in the 30s and households were, you know nationwide in the 50s and these these have been around for you know centuries yes. so I still think there's a lot to there's still going to be a lot of changes in how um, social media impacts our lives and I'm, I'm not against it but I think that people should be a little more discerning about how they let it influence them. And so what's next for you? Is there a follow-up book to the fame game or a podcast uh, with more stories or just just what's the next project for you? Um, I'm plotting that as we speak. I'm, I'm looking at to see what kind of reaction I get from the book. But the main reason I wrote the book was, yeah, I've been in the entertainment industry. I've been in the service industry for over 40 years, you know, and I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to invest in my own brand uh, instead of, you know, uh, nursing and caring for everybody else and doing that for myself. So I, I'd like to write, you know, several more books and see what I can do um, to forge my own brand. I'm not looking to, you know, necessarily, I don't think I have 15 minutes of fame. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, I still have a lot of great years left in my life, and I just want to make the most out of it, whatever seems to. Uh, I never thought of myself as having a career, but I like to be inspired and motivated by the, whatever I do. And as long as I find those things that I that uh, uh, fulfill that that goal for me, then I'm, I'm I'm happy. Are you still interested in managing uh, clients? I'm not as interested in managing clients as I used to be because, again, I've, there's not anybody I haven't managed or, or done PR for. I've been very, very blessed and lucky. Uh, and have I sat around and just said, I mean, there's a lot of younger artists that I, you know, there's some younger artists that I like, uh, like someone like an Anderson Pack. I think he's extremely talented, or, or Bruno Mars and, you know, the people like that. But I'm not going to get those opportunities to manage those people at this point in my life. But I'm not, it isn't something that's um, a priority for me. If the right situation came in, you know, but I have a couple of projects that are still entertainment-based where I would be presiding over them, but not necessarily, they're more like as a producer, uh, owner kind of situation as opposed to managing um, and trying to build someone's career or, again, uh, revive it. Uh, that those aren't current priorities for me. Well, again, Ramon, thank you so much. The book, again, is The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. And um, 
as I told you before, I read this book in less than two days. I just couldn't wait to turn the page uh, for the next one. So thank you for this book. And I look so forward if you decide to do a sequel or a follow-up to it or whatever project. Uh, I well, look forward to definitely so. Thank you so much for your support. I'm really happy. You know, it's nice to hear when people say they enjoy the book. That means a lot to me. So I, I really am glad that you enjoyed it. And again, I appreciate the invitation to do your show. And, uh, and I wish you the best. Okay. Thank you again. And uh, I'll, you know, continue to follow you on social media to see what's going on with you next. All right. Thank you so much, James. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you so much, Ramon Hervey. I tell you, I learned a lot about the entertainment industry from reading his book. It's not just a, you know, it's not a tell-all book or anything like that, but it, it does give a lot of insight as to, uh, you know, various celebrities that we've been fans of for many years. So again, the book is The Fame Game. So Ramon, thank you for being our guest on the show. We also want to thank Coach Rex Ryan and his friend Tim Mann, Team T-Rex, from The Amazing Race. Also want to thank Mike Allen, co-founder of the world-renowned media company Axios and also co-author of his new book, along with his two colleagues, Smart Brevity. So we have all of these smart, talented people on our show for this week. Thank everybody for listening. And thank you, of course, to our guests for taking the time to join us. So we'll see you guys next Saturday on another edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Have a great rest of the weekend and next week as well. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com. Ooh.